Welcome into the 11 Dubcast presented by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. I am Bo, Johnny on the other end. We got hoops to discuss and, and a lot of, lot of layers to what we saw uh, over the weekend, what we've seen this season with Ohio State basketball. Um, it ends with Ohio State uh, taking on Iowa State in Tulsa late on Friday night. Um, let's start, John, by going back uh, to a conversation you and I had, but I don't think anybody heard, which was that Thursday um, <laughs> in the Big Ten championship game was a play-in game, and it was. It was. I, I think if they would have lost that game, they would not have made the NCAA tournament. I think that's pretty plain to see right now. They had yeah. to win it. It was an Indiana team that was desperate. I thought it was more important for Indiana to win than Ohio State because of more of an indictment on what Archie Miller is do- has done than what Chris Holtman has done. Um, Archie had the best player in the state of Indiana sign with him, a kid who's going to be a top six, seven pick in the NBA draft next year in Romeo Langford. They were playing better down the stretch and, and it was one that, that they needed, I thought more than Ohio state did with Holtman. And yet Holtman gets the job and it kind of settles for me that kind of that age old question, not that I had a doubt, but that Holtman is better than Archie Miller, which is a, a crazy thing to wrap your mind around because forever, the feeling was, or certainly initially, the feeling was that that Gene Smith blew it in not getting Thad done quicker so that they could get Archie Miller. Archie Miller goes to Indiana, you end up with Holtman, almost felt like a consolation prize. It certainly hasn't the two years Holtman has been here, and this game kind of cemented it because Indiana, um, Indiana was a more complete team. They have the better overall player. They were playing better. Uh, we got Caleb coming back with, you know, first game back, and he was great in that game. Um, but it kind of cemented to me what Holtman's all about and that the future of this program is very, very bright. Well, I mean, <laughs> you've got a team that is not complete. They've, they've got a lot of things that they've got, a lot of holes they got to fill, a lot of things they got to deal with. And when you don't have Caleb, you don't have a whole lot in a lot of ways. Um, but, it, you know, the thing about the Ohio State men's basketball team is that they still have the same character character as they did last season which was they just they will fight and fight and fight and fight and try to get that win and that's again that's one of the biggest things that I've liked about watching these Chris Holtman teams and again it hasn't always been easy this season because they've had some pretty brutal games but they just they don't have a lot of give up they they fight they they have that give a damn that we've talked about before and you know it that makes you look really forward, I think, to next season. I don't. I'm not super optimistic about the NCAA tournament. It's it's cool that they're in. I, I think everybody's pretty happy about that. But I am also not super stoked about their chances against Iowa State. But no. I, I imagine we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, we will get to that. And I, yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, you like I said, I've said this for much of the season. It's not important to me if they made it or not. I mean, I, I judge this team as bubble in, bubble out. I wanted them to be a bubble team. If they would have got in, great. If they would have got, if they would have missed, okay, fine. Like as long as you were a bubble team, um, and that was kind of the baseline expectation for that. I, I equate it this way: like my kids right now, my oldest is in first grade, and he they get three, two, and one. One is underperforming, two is performing to their grade level, and three is exceeding the grade level um, okay. for the end of the year. Okay, so like to me, a two is a bubble. And then if they are slightly above that, they'll go two plus. So they'll put two, or maybe it's two with a check mark. Two with a check mark, maybe. Two with a check mark means that they're slightly above that, but they're not quite a three. And that's what this season is to me for Ohio State. Like in order for them to be a three, which would be far exceeding, they would end up being like an eight or a nine seed. But sure. the talent on this team is not one that deserves anything more than that. They have major, major flaws. 
enormous flaws in, in an inability to shoot, an inability for anybody to create their own shot, and an inability to find offense when Caleb Wesson isn't on the floor. And so for them to limp into the postseason and not have to play in a play-in game and play in a, and get in as an 11 seed, to me, is a two check mark or two plus, whatever the teachers at his school do. It's one of those two. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that this the consolation prize here ain't great, right? I mean, it's Iowa State yeah. who's pretty damn good who's playing really well of late, who swept through the Big 12 tournament, they score about 80 points a game as a team. This game is going to be played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which would be very close for Iowa State to be able to get to, relatively relative to us at least, certainly. It will be played late Friday, so this will be the least watched of the games. By the time you get to late Friday night, that's quite a bit of first-round fatigue starts to wear in. I think it's like a 9.50 tip or something like that. It's very late, so it'll probably be more like 10.15, 10.20. Um, and so this is, you're not going to get a big prime time slot. You're not going to get a favorable matchup in a favorable location. It's more like, uh, thank you. May I have another, we're just happy to be here. And I think that is it. I, I think that's kind of where it is with the fan base too. Like, I don't think anybody expects them to beat Iowa state. Do they? No, I, I, I don't think so either. And I think, you know, when it was announced, you saw a lot of, uh, highlights of Aaron Kraft beating, Iowa State six years ago yes, with that three, did, didn't you? and then every and I was like, well, wait a minute, are, are we going to talk about matchups here? We're we going to like, no, no, I don't think really anybody's interested in that right now. Um, let's just let's just enjoy the you know the history of this this particular matchup and then kind of dwell on that for a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, I don't think anybody's super stoked for it for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's an effective away game, and it's just you know. It, as far as the expectations go, as far as the game itself goes, I don't think anybody's stoked. As far as the expectations go and the fact that Ohio State was able to get to the tournament with the team that they have, with the talent that they have, uh, you know, you're a low seed, but you're in it. And you're not doing a play-in game, and you came really yeah. close to being a play-in game. But, um, you know, it's it's an accomplishment. And this is something else that we've talked about is like, you know, is it going to be fun to watch? Is everybody really excited for it? Probably not. But is this something that Chris Holtman can say that they've, yeah. you know, this is an NCAA team, this is an NCAA program, you know, something that we do on a consistent basis? Yes, they can do that. Yeah, and that's critical. important. That's important for recruiting. That's important for whole, all kinds of things for as far as the program goes. So, you know, in that sense, it's a total victory. And as long as they don't get completely blown out by Iowa – you know, I, I think you can still say that. I can say, look, this is a this is a program under the rise, and Chris Holtman's a great coach and can take a team like this and get them to March Madness. And so you can sell that. And, you know, they've been selling that. And you look at some of the guys they've tried to bring in, and, you know, they're looking at some, like, college transfers and things like that. I, I think the next couple seasons are going to look really good for, for Holtman and company. I think if you want to think about what Ohio State is going to look like the next couple of years – um, I think you can look to our neighbors to the north yeah. because uh, I think what you're going to see is teams similar to what Michigan and Michigan State have, which are teams with incredible program depth. I think the 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 model for Ohio State to emulate is Michigan State, obviously. I don't know mm -hmm. if we can get to that. Uh, Michigan's actually been more successful in the tournament, but I think Michigan State's the better program. Uh, but but he, what Holman has here now is uh, a formula for that. And I'll explain it this way. So off of this team, both of the Wessons will be back. Andre will be a senior. Uh, Caleb will be a junior next year. They'll have Muhammad Jallo, Washington Irons, Kyle Young, all of those guys. So everybody I mentioned other than Andre Wesson will be sophomores and juniors, right? Right. Added to that will be 
Carton, Gaffney, and Liddell. And all of those are top 50 players. It's the number one recruiting class in the Big Ten at the moment, uh, according to 24-7. The, the most notable player there is Carton, who is a lead guard. He is a point guard. He's a scoring point guard. He's in the, you know, he's in the Scooney Pen, you know, ilk. Somebody like right. that, who's a Pied Piper leader, scorer, create his own shot guy. So what you have done this year is you have created a base of sophomores and juniors, none of which are going to go pro. Uh, <laughs> Caleb Weston's going to be a – he will be a four-year player at Ohio State. He's going to have a chance – I mean, he's going to start climbing up some record books just because of how many games he's he's going to end up playing by the time this thing's all said and done. Um, but he's going to be a four-year player. All these guys I mentioned are going to be four-year players. So now these guys are going to – some of these guys will fall into role players. They will be depth guys. They'll be quality starters and leaders. They'll have the experience of beating Indiana in the Big Ten tournament, of getting to the NCAA tournament. And then you add Carton, Gaffney, and Liddell to them, and now you get a talent influx of the number one recruiting class in the country, or I'm sorry, in the Big Ten. And now you say to yourself, all right, that's what Michigan does, and that's what Michigan State does. And that's what we used to do. Uh, and I think Thad, got, Thad had a hard time trying to figure out what to be at the end because his biggest success was really with the one-and-done type players or the yeah. NBA type players. When you think about Connelly Oden and even Sullinger, who if not for the NBA, the threat of an NBA lockout would have been an, a one-and-done player. Um, and so he didn't really – there wasn't a real answer in terms of, of, of what to do there. Well, now all of a sudden, because of, of the struggles of this year and the experience gained by all these young kids – these kids will now be an ex experienced sophomores and juniors, and now you add super talented freshmen to the mix. Well, now you've got a true program. Now you have an identity. Now you know how to win. And now you can next year, next year, Ohio State, if this Carton kid's as good as everybody says he could be, Ohio State should be a top four team in the Big Ten. And the year after that, it should be a team that can, you know, reach the final four. That should be the expectation in a couple of years based on what we've seen. Well, I mean, depth is, is such a huge part of it, right? Like, it's just the fact that you have experienced guys that you can bring off the bench and experienced guys can, you know, spell minutes for, you know, maybe some of the talented guys who are coming in who are a little bit younger and a little bit more talented. You just, the problem was, aside from the fact that you couldn't buy a bucket half the time, is, no, yeah, yeah <laughs> which is in itself brutal. a pretty big problem. But Just when you're brutal. dealing with a situation where you've got like Kyle Young in some places where they're saying like, well, he can either practice or he can play, but he can't do both because we, we just can't afford it. And it's like, that's not that's not a situation you want to have on your team. And when you're playing the Big Ten and teams are just, you know, there's a lot, it's physical. There's a lot of teams who are just going to force a lot of minutes on players because of the way they're going to try to play you. You know, you've got to be able to have enough depth to be able to handle that kind of, uh, you know, gauntlet that you're going to have to deal with. A lot of these teams, like even just even the teams that are really not that talented are just really, really good at wearing opponents down. You know, yeah. you just need you need depth. And this team just didn't have it for pretty much the entire season. They didn't really have a whole lot of it last season, frankly. Um, and and that's really that's the that's part of building a program. That's what, you know, Chris Holtman's been tasked to do is to create that depth and make it so that, you know, like you were talking about with using Michigan State as a model, Michigan State, one of the one of the ways that Tom Izzo has really succeeded is that he can call guys off his bench and there's no drop off. Like you just they just no, keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, Ohio State needs that. And I think I think Chris Holtman's developing it. Yeah, the, the Michigan State model is one that I just I, I and I, you could, people can say that, you know, they haven't lived up to the hype sometimes in the postseason. And that probably is true. Uh, last year, chief among them. Um, but but what he does is he gets one or two five stars every year, usually mm -hmm. one for sure. 
Um, and then he's got a bunch of program guys who stick around and he develops them and they get better while they're there. And, and that's, that's a pretty cool thing. That is a pretty cool thing. And that's, a, that's a program. Um, to me, that's, as, that's all you can ask for in college hoops is to be relevant all the time. And they always are. And I think that's attainable for Holtman at Ohio state. And I actually think these first two years here are going to go a long way towards that because he's going to, he's developed some real program guys, you know, who have gotten yeah. better. And so I, I think you got a real chance at that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the draw. Neither I'm not optimistic at all. I, I mean, you have anything on Iowa State other than that I don't that it, the, that you hate it because I don't. I mean, I just, it's a terrible matchup. Yeah, the matchup sucks. And, and as you said, I mean, they're a high scoring team. They've they've played really well as of late. Uh, Ohio State, unless something crazy happens, you know, or you know, Aaron's decides to hit thirty again or something like that, they you just can't really get into a, a tit for tat scoring matchup with them. Mm-mm. Um. Yeah. There's really, honestly, if you look at the lineups, I just don't think that there's a place where Ohio State has an advantage. You know, man to man. I, I just, you know, it's it's really going to be difficult. And then, you know, you could say that about almost any team Ohio State would match up with, aside from maybe even a team where it's like, oh, we're just going to huck a bunch of threes or something like that. You know, the the foul trouble that Caleb gets in just hurts them so much when you've got guys who can like slash to the basket. Because then you just you're afraid you can't you can't defend you can't draw fat. I mean it's just you know it's it's really difficult to defend when you know one of the guys that rely on for interior defense is on the bench half the time. So you know it's just I don't know it, it's a difficult matchup. It's cool that they're going to be in it, but I'm also you know kind of glad that I'll probably be like half asleep um, yeah. for most. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, look, I mean, and with Caleb, it's like I, I think he just needs his season to end. With the yeah. trouble, because I think it's I I I think it's a lot like, and I just use this analogy with one of my with my son. I have one who lies and one who's honest, and so <laughs> if the two get into a disagreement, I trust the one who's honest, and I tell the one who lies, I say, "Listen, dude, like you lie all the time, so <laughs> because you lie all the time, you get no benefit of the doubt. Right. I trust him. I trust your brother because he tells me the truth. So if both of you come to me and you both say the other one of you is being an ass, I'm going to believe the one who's honest. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And that's Caleb Wesson. Caleb Wesson right. gets no benefit of the doubt. He's the son of mine who always lies. So he may not, my, the son who always lies may not always actually be lying, but because he has a track record that's been built of lies, much like Caleb, because he's constantly in foul trouble, he's never going to get the benefit of the doubt. Every call that could go one way, it seems, goes against him. And the reason for that is because of his track record. So yeah. he just needs his season to be over, and he needs to start fresh next year. Well, I will say, if you want to look for something to criticize Chris Holtman on, I think this is – and I don't even know if you can criticize him about but maybe one thing if you want to compare him unfavorably to Thad Mata about – is that Thad Mata was exceptionally good at getting his players to play hard defense without fouling. That is that is something that he was very, very good at. I mean, if, maybe Ohio State got the benefit of the doubt under Chris Holman, whatever you want to say, but the fact is, is that his, his guys, especially his bigs, did not get in foul trouble nearly as much as you've seen uh, some of the guys in the past couple of years. And it's not, you know, again, it's, it's not all Chris Holtman's fault or anything like that, but I am curious. I've always wondered what allowed Thad Mata, like what technique he had, you know, just to figure out how these guys could, you know, play really close defense, but still not manage to draw, you know, four fouls before five minutes in the second half. So, yeah, even <laughs> again, a lot of that's I just mean, Caleb. Like, I'm not going to crap on Holtman, right, for some yeah. pretty clear, dumb things it's that Caleb, Caleb does. But, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, he gets, he, he has at least one dumb foul a game. Yes, you know, that is he, absolutely you know, that just, true. You know, that can't happen. Let's talk a little bit about the Big Ten draw in, in at large. So eight teams get in from the Big Ten, get into March Madness. Um, I, I thought the only crime, and it was it's one that's been talked about a lot, was Michigan State uh, beating Michigan three straight, three times this season, including on Sunday, where the committee could have simply watched them and them getting a tougher two-seed line than Michigan. Um, it yeah. very much looked like Michigan was the number one two seed and Michigan State was the last two seed. And that makes no damn sense based on the fact that Michigan State beat him three times. Um, if Duke's the overall number one seed, how in the hell you got that? Why wouldn't Michigan be there? And why wouldn't Michigan State be playing with Gonzaga? It makes no sense. Yeah, yeah that was I, And there's been no explanation of that. I don't know. I don't even know. I like the they try to say that this is transparent. They try to say like, okay, this is how we do things X, Y, and Z. But that that is patently ridiculous. I don't know. Like, you have these games, you have these championship games towards the end, and everybody like puts so much emphasis on them. In part because a lot of them are playing games, and we understand that. But then we're like, okay, well, this guy can help their, you know, this team can help their ranking, their seating, whatever at the very end. That doesn't ever seem to be actually true. Sometimes it feels no. like they've made their decision before that weekend and come hell or high water they're going to stick with some of these teams where they think they should be and i just i don't i don't get it i don't understand you know if you're (laughs) i have a i have a student who's a michigan fan he's you know he comes in and he's just ecstatic i'm like man you stole that spot (laughs) like it's not yours you know like that that was that was parties and it's just so crazy yeah it doesn't make any sense to me and then you know they've got they show those pictures i don't know if you saw that on twitter they show these pictures they're like in this like this vault it looks like they're in a bunker, you know, 40, 40 uh, stories oh, below God. sea level or something. And they're just, oh. they've got this giant projected thing. And I'm like, okay, I feel like they're just rolling dice half the time. It's crazy. Yes, I would agree that it is crazy. Um, it, it, they, they just got that so wrong. It's interesting. And I think about how fortunate uh, Michigan has been in basketball recently. Like they've twice played for a national championship. They've lost them both, but they've played for it twice, which is an incredible achievement. Um, and they've done so in many instances with just, it seems like the draw all goes their way. And I got them in the final four again this year. Um, I mean, I think they get out of that. There's nothing, you know, the three out there is Texas tech and then it's Gonzaga in the final. It's very manageable for them. Um, I actually think Purdue's got a pretty good draw too. Uh, I actually have them in the final four as well, getting out of that Virginia region, which would be the first time they've been in the final four since 1980. Um, most of the other, I got Michigan state to the lead eight, everybody else, I think in the big 10, I have losing in the first round, but, um, I think you could have two out of four in the final four. I don't have either one playing in the final. Um, but I think you could see that. I think both Purdue and Michigan were given very, very nice draws. Do you think, so I think a lot of, I mean, the, the top teams, right? You got Duke, you got Gonzaga, you've got Virginia, you know, they're, they're on the redemption tour. And then you've got obviously North Carolina. Carolina yeah. Do you, you, I mean, obviously, it's it's not going to be straight chalk if you get the other guys in there. But do you really think that Duke is like head and shoulders above the rest of the teams as everyone else does? Because I honestly, like, I would, I I personally think it's like not even a contest. I think they're just they're just going to run train through this entire bracket. I think certain teams would have been a problematic matchup for them. Yeah. Um. So I think teams that shoot the three well would have been a problematic matchup for them. I think teams with veterans. Um, would have been problematic for them, but their draw doesn't really have any of that. No, um, you know, they're you know, Michigan State could give them a challenge because Michigan State shoots it pretty well. Michigan State's so banged up, uh, but they shoot it pretty well. They got a great guard, um, so that you know, that that could be interesting for them, but I think mostly, 
I obviously Duke's t- top end talent is is absurd. They're the biggest favorite since 1415 when Kentucky was undefeated with Carl yeah. Anthony Towns and those guys. So that's the first time since then that a team has that a te- they're that big of a, of a favorite going into it. So they're a monster favorite, obviously. Um, but at the same time, um, I think if if there were a team in their draw that had some some guys who could knock down threes and veterans, I think it could be problematic. But it's just not in that draw. It's just right. not. So like right. the teams that could be a problem for them, they're not going to have to play. I don't think so. You know, I think Michigan could make it interesting for them. I think Michigan State could make it interesting for them. Both those teams shoot it well. Both of those those teams are veteran teams. Uh, those are the type of teams that could scare them, but they avoid it largely. So, I mean, I, I mean, I have them winning it. I don't know how you could pick anybody against them, you know, to win it. If you're doing a bracket pool, I don't know how you'd pick anybody other than to win it. Seems like right. a logical choice. Because that's the, I mean, because for me, because I agree with you. I mean, I think their draw is incredibly favorable. I, I have them winning a national championship, but I'm looking at the bracket and I'm, I'm watching the show as it's being selected and whatnot. And I am not as pumped about potential matchups between some of these top teams as I am between some of the middle seeds, which I think will be really, really entertaining. And I'm kind of looking at the way the bracket breaks down for some of the, the top seeds. And I'm like, I don't know that I'm that excited for the first couple of rounds for the top seeds. Like I'm, I'm more curious, like for instance, I'm really excited to see Cincinnati and Iowa up here in CBUS. I think that'll be, that game will be fun as hell. Like I'm yeah, really excited. And Cincinnati, Tennessee will be a great game. I mean, yeah, I think absolutely. Cincinnati could beat Tennessee. I really do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, there's some good ones. I think I think the thing you have to remember is I think what the committee does with the with the bracket is like for example, like they're going to put Minnesota against Louisville, right? Right. Richard Pitino right. against his dad. They're going to put um like they always put Kansas and Carolina in the same bracket. So what they're thinking is with Kansas is a four and Carolina is a one. What they're thinking down the road is next weekend if the chalk holds on a Thursday or Friday night, we can build our programming around North Carolina and Kansas. Mm-hmm. So that'll deliver a big rating. And then they're thinking to themselves, all right, let's break out to the next level. Boy, we can build our programming in the Elite Eight pretty good on Saturday against Michigan State against Duke and on Sunday with Carolina against Kentucky. So now we're going to get rating Saturday, Sunday, Thursday. And then the Final Four rates itself. By that point, at least we'll have two good teams in it because we got them on opposite sides. So either Michigan State or Duke's going to be in it, neither North Carolina or Kentucky's going to be in it. Well, hell, we're set. We got blue bloods yeah. on both sides. We don't need four blue bloods. We'd like them, sure. But what we need is we need ratings to go all the way throughout, and I think they set the bracket up that way. They yeah. It's a TV show. They set the yeah. bracket up as a TV show to get the best ratings that they can get. And I think what I think what March Madness is, is the greatest sporting event that there is. I think it's one of the worst ways to determine a champion in the history of champions because <laughs> the best team does not win. Uh, you play all these games all year, and then it comes down to something happening on any given Thursday night, and the, the best teams don't win this thing. Um, right. Oftentimes, they don't. The overall number one overall seed, they don't win it 80% of the time. It's not like that at all. And so it's it's not the best way of determining a winner, but it's a hell of a run. And it's a hell of a show, and there's more drama to it than anything else you're going to see in sports because of the one-and-done nature of it. Yeah. No, I I mean, look, and honestly, I don't care about finding the the quote-unquote best team. Like, that's an argument that pops up in the, uh, you know, the the playoff, the national playoff and things like that for college football. I don't care about that. I want to see – I want to see entertainment. I want to see excitement. I don't really care if, the you know, the metrics all say who was the best, you know, 50 years down the line. 
I think it's the most entertaining way to do it. And I think it's as valid as any other. And it's not, again, you're right. It's not picking the best team, but frankly, that wouldn't be as exciting if that happened every year. So I'm, I'm cool with it. And I, I, I just think it's, I'm with you, man. I think it's the most exciting, most entertaining sporting event um, in America and, and, and what we have. And it's just really, really just fun to watch and analyze. And I remember yeah. when I lived in Japan, I, uh, so they have something called Koishin, which are, or I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but it's essentially like their high school baseball tournament, which essentially functions like the same way as March Madness. And it's kind of, okay. it has the same cultural investment. And <laughs> I showed them uh, while March Madness was going on, I showed them, like how you can stream it and how they have like the boss button, you know, in case somebody was coming yeah. looking, you know, while you're at work and whatnot. And it just cracked them up because it's such a weird, you know, unique cultural thing that it's, it just, it pervades our entire sensibility about sports for like, you know, these, these couple weeks here. And it's just fun as hell. And I love every second of it. And I, you know, I wish Ohio state had better chances of sticking in it for a little bit longer. I don't think they do. But it's it's fun either way. And, you know, my backup team's always Sensi. So we're going to see how they do. And my other backup team is always Utah State. So let's see how how things go for them. So I'm, I'm excited State. for both these teams. Utah State, man. Aggies, show me a Scotsman. I love Utah State. If you haven't, this is, people who are listening to this need to do this uh, when this podcast is over. On YouTube, there is a ton of videos. There's one specifically, and I guess I'll link it in the the post of Utah State doing their school chants and their fight songs. Absolutely awesome, just freaking incredible. <laughs> I love it. They they have this unique fight song based around them being an ag college, and it's really hilarious. And yeah, I check that out. They're they're definitely right. like my my you know two B I guess. So I've got two right. A is UC, and then two B is Utah State. All right, very good, very good. I will. I will obviously be rooting hard for Montana to knock off Michigan. Of course, they played two years in a row. So if, if the home state could take care of business, that'd be nice. I saw actually somebody, one of the East Coast papers, picked picked Montana to beat Montana State or to beat Michigan rather. So I don't know. That'd be All pretty right. sweet if that pulled off. We'll see what happens. That would be oh, it's the best. Hell yeah, that'd be hilarious. I'd be down for that in a second. Yeah, yeah that'd be good. Um, I want before we uh, move on. I wanted to also mention Jeff Bolds getting the job at Ohio. Um, I know Jeff Bowles very well from his time as an assistant with Thad. He is a class individual. Um, I think he's wanted to be the head coach at his alma mater forever, and they should have hired him the last time. I think Saul Phillips is a good guy. just didn't work out. Uh, but Bowles goes to Stony Brook. He wins at Stony Brook and then is now back coaching Ohio. And, uh, look, I know this is an Ohio State podcast, but, boy, if you want a second favorite team and, and you don't have an alma mater in the state in the MAC to root for, root for Ohio and Jeff Bowles. You're not going to find a better guy. If you need proof of that, Saul Phillips' wife actually wrote um, an incredible thing. And, and now remember, her husband's being replaced by Jeff Bowles. And, and she wrote this incredible thing about when they had a medical emergency that brought them to Columbus. Uh, Bowles at the time was an Ohio State assistant, and he offered up their, his home for them to stay wow. in. That's wow. the type of guy he is, man. Like he's, he's salt of the earth. And so, and I know he's, I, I saw him emotional at his press conference today. It just thrills me to see him back. And um, he, he was a great, he wasn't a good, he was a great Ohio State assistant and a great guy, like one of the best yeah. guys. So I'm, I was very happy to see that. 
Yeah, same. I mean, he, you know, we we really enjoyed, uh, you know, kind of following him while he was on the team. And, you know, there were a lot of people who would dress up as Jeff Bowles and wear the glasses. Oh, that's right. Like that. So, yeah, he's he, yeah. it's really cool to see that dude having success because, as you said, I mean, every interaction we've ever had with him via the site has just been just top notch, just a really solid dude. So, yeah, yeah. He's congratulations. Have anything else? Uh, anything else before we get to ask us anything? Well, Bo, I don't know if you're aware of this, but our, our good friend Zach Smith has been saying on, on the Twitters that he's starting up a podcast. So I do you Come have again. any do you have any advice that you would you would give to Zach Smith? Come this again. New phase of his career. <laughs> what? He's starting yeah. a pod? Yeah, man. Oh for God. It's 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 gonna be I guess it's gonna be about his uh, culinary adventures be... in Tuscany, I think. Oh my god. I think like you know, I, I think for Zach, in all honesty, like he probably just needs to leave. Yeah. Uh, I know that's complicated because he's got kids here and his ex-wife's here, obviously, and they're, you know, joint raising children. And but like I don't know. I just don't know what I don't see an end game of positivity anywhere. Uh I don't. So yeah. Um, you know, here for in terms of Ohio State, you're always going to be associated with the end of urban Meyer. And if, if that didn't happen, urban would still be the coach at Ohio state. And while we all love Ryan day, there's nobody who would say you're better off with Ryan day than urban Meyer. Not now. And so, so it's like, I just, I do not see, I don't, it's again though. I mean, you can't, you don't begrudge anybody trying to make a living or try to sort it out or try to find a way to do something that you like. But, but when, when I have, I don't follow him on social media, so I, I don't know what he does on the reg, but what I have seen of his stuff, it's, it's just stuff that I just think. So, all right, be sure to visit 11 warriors for dry goods, for shirts, hats, <laughs> stickers, and more dry goods at 11 warriors.com. And don't f- forget to follow the 11 dubcast on Twitter and rate and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for ask us anything. What do you have for us this week, John? All right. Well, we have a lot of really good questions. Again, you can ask us anything. Send us questions to dubcast at 11warriors.com or at 11dubcast. Uh, let's start off with Alvin, our good friend Alvin. He wants to know, in general, does college football and basketball success come more from the players than the coaches? No. Uh, no, it's the coaches because yep. they determine the players. So they go to decide which players are good. They offer them scholarships, and then they develop them. Um, you know. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's and that the money in the last 10 years finally got even. And that's how somebody like Lincoln Riley can stay at Oklahoma rather than coach the Cleveland Browns. Um, because mm, the yeah. money's the same and you control your roster. It's the reason that urban's never felt the need to the itch to go to the NFL because why would he, he can make all the money he needs in college and he can, he's a control freak. He controls every aspect of a program. Why would he <laughs> want to leave it to a general manager? Yeah. Yeah. I think in in football, it's, I mean, forget it. Like it's the coach. It's not even close to, I mean, the players are obviously they're on the field and whatnot, but if you look at the impact that a great college football coach can have on even on like a mediocre team, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. The the amount of work that goes into getting the players doing what they need to do. And and honestly, this has been one of my things with college football for a long time, which is, you know, 
a lot of these players kind of become, you know, they go into college as three stars. And if they have a three-star coach and they stay as a three-star, but if they go in as a three-star and they have a five-star coach, they can get in the NFL when they're done. And yeah. it's, it's a lot of it is coaching. A lot of it is just getting guys to play at their ability. And they just never have had that before maybe in their careers yet. So yeah, for me, it's, it's coaching all the way. I think basketball, maybe it's slightly less, but it's still ridiculously important. Um, so I'm with, I'm with coaching on both of those things there. Um, all right. The next one, this is from uh, Suncard, and <laughs> he wants to know the big diva wide receivers like OBJ, TO Moss and et cetera, tend not to win too many Super Bowls. So are they, are they as big an impact as we'd like to say they are in the long run? Well, I think you, I think you have to, th- all right, let's look who's hogged Super Bowls in okay. the last 25 years. Or, you know, if you want to go back, let's go all the way back to the, let's go back to 1990 for the yeah. sake of this. All right, let's go back to there. So the the Cowboys won three Super Bowls in that time, and they had a diva receiver in Michael Irvin. Right. Um, the 49ers won a, won a Super Bowl. Um, I think that was before T.O., it was, yeah. Um, and they had Jerry Rice. I'm thinking like 1994. So that would have been the end of Jerry Rice. Um, but they had a diva corner in Deion Sanders. Um, mm-hmm. Then then you start to get into uh, Packers with Favre. You've got the Steelers win three. Um, you've got six Patriots, you know, during that time. Right. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's no, there's, I mean, they got Gronkowski. He's a, it's, he's a diva. You know, if you're going to call, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. a diva, then you got to call Gronkowski a diva. Oh, Gronk is 100% a diva. Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah I mean, you got to say that the same. Um, so I think it, I think it depends on, I think it depends a lot on the circumstance. You know, the ones that he mentioned did not, but Randy Moss was part of the most prolific offense of all time in New England. And if not for a, uh, the, the most absurd helmet catch of all time, he's part of, a, a season that had him catch, I want to say like 25 touchdowns. Tom oh, yeah, Brady threw 50. They would have been 19 and 0 if if David David Tyree doesn't make a catch on his head, or if the Patriots simply sack Eli Manning instead of allowing him to slippery get out. The other <laughs> thing about it is Moss was also part of a team in Minnesota where if Gary Anderson is that Gary Anderson? Is that the right one too? Yeah, 98. Yeah, in 98 Gary Anderson, they're 15 and one playing in the NFC championship game at home. Gary Anderson hadn't missed a field goal all year and misses a field goal. And somehow the Falcons get into the Super Bowl. But the Vikings would have been a big favorite over Denver to get in to win that Super Bowl had they got into it. Um, so, you know, T.O. didn't win one, uh, played in one, played his heart out. I was there for Philly where they where they lost to the Patriots. Um, Odell Beckham Jr. hasn't had a chance yet, but. You know, give it a minute. The Browns are pretty loaded. They're the fifth pick this year to win the Super Bowl right now. He's yeah, still young. I, I, I think, here's what I think. I think that people forget, because of the divaness maybe, and then the attention they draw in the media and whatnot, that they forget that this is a team sport occasionally. And they're like, you know yeah. what? Okay, we've got the quarterback. We've got the wide receiver. We're going to win a Super Bowl. There's so much more that goes into it. There's so much stuff that you have to deal with you know, on the opposite side of the ball, obviously, but just, you can't just have one guy throw into another guy and expect to win a bunch of championships. It just doesn't work that way. And it's, it helps. It's great. But there, I mean, you look at the Patriots. I mean, the Patriots are the biggest, biggest example of this. You got Gronk, but like you're throwing to Edelman and all these other dudes who just come out of nowhere. Right. Like that's the point that I'm making is that 
you know, in the sense that are these big diva wide receivers going to win you a national, you know, a, a Super Bowl? No, but are they going to be a huge part of an offense that can do that? Yes, and you've just got to have it a complete be, team. Yeah, yeah, you got to have a complete team to be able to do that. And it's not, you know, the Browns are immeasurably better now, right? Because yes. of what yeah. what they've been able to acquire, they're not going to be like less likely to win a Super Bowl because they now have an incredible wide receiver, maybe one of the best in the game. Like they can't, like that's not going to hurt their chances in the long run. That's no. only going to make them better. So, I mean, big ups to Browns fans. I I will say though, and this is this is the you know the ghost of Christmas future kind of like lurking in the wings here, you know, having a hot shot quarterback and a really, really great wide receiver and no expectations about, you know, playoff success is not always the most fun thing in the world to have sitting on your shoulders. So I'm just want to, I just want to temper the Browns yeah. fans excitement just a little bit because as a Bengals fan, I kind of know what it's like a little bit. I'm not saying. Well, right. Know. But like if, if Kimmy Von Olhoffen doesn't shred Carson Palmer's knee, That's you may true. have won a Super Bowl. Like that's it's true. no fault of the diva receiver or the or the franchise quarterback. I mean, but that's what I'm saying. Things, things break your way. Yeah. Things don't break your way sometimes. Bad things happen. You yeah. can't plan. You can't plan to win these these rings before they're on your hand. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um. So it it can be uh, you know some ups and downs. Uh. All right. This next one here. This is from Evan. Uh. This is a question for both of us with a special deference to noted historian Johnny. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, very uh, good, yeah. <laughs> I am finishing a book on the battle of okinawa by george pfeiffer next up is eugene sledge's memoir uh with the old breed at palu and okinawa i'd like to get your insights on this campaign especially considering that johnny you lived in japan for a time i don't want to ask the same about the falklands war i don't have a lot of information for falklands war i'm sorry evan uh, <laughs> but i don't want to overstay my welcome um here's so the this thing. is so uh, real quick did... this is the, no, go for the, it. the this is this the follow-up to band of brothers Be, sledge yes correct a lot of he his memoirs in the, were in the uh... pacific yes yeah, yeah. Uh, which i sledge, found you... so damn grim oh my god and and you know so what grim. i'm glad it was because people don't <laughs> appreciate how unbelievably horrific uh, those campaigns were in the uh, in the South Pacific towards the end of the war. Well, like we we give a lot of this deference, I think, to the the narrative surrounding um, you know the European theater because it was just so ridiculously you know like you've got Hitler and you've got everything to do with the Holocaust and there's these incredible narratives that come out of it, but it's it is insane what well, happened. You have, you're right. You have like uh, I think you're right on the European side. You have these these comic book. Uh, right satanic leaders right right like the, the worst humans in the history of the world they're easily identifiable um the, the the enemy that you fought in the pacific was you know sometimes almost nameless faceless like with you you couldn't even understand them i mean they go in the pacific going to great detail about the the kamikaze nature of it and the right. uh the suicide uh vests and all of the stuff the way that they'd go about their business i mean it was for, from the perspective of watching that and that is what i'm limited to here um, it was hard for the Americans to even, we, it was like, we couldn't wrap our mind around that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, like it's, there was a clear adversary in, in Europe. Well, let me, so let me, let me throw a couple stats here just, just quickly. Uh, so Okinawa was, and it's interesting that we're talking about this because in American history right now, we're just starting a little unit about the civil rights movement. Before that, we talked about, uh, the end of world war two and the beginning of the cold war and the red scare and all that stuff. Um, but part of what really fosters, I, and this is my opinion as a teacher and a history guy, a lot of what fosters our reaction to um, the Cold War and how we interact with the USSR was our experience as a country 
watching tens of thousands of people die in the Pacific Ocean. And like that fear of, of, of you know, world domination and then the, the relief that the nuclear, uh, you know, the, the two atomic bombs, you know, fat man and little boy being dropped in Japan brought to the United States impacts so much of how we comprehend war afterwards that I don't think really it's, it's appreciated enough. But the point that I want to make here with Okinawa, Okinawa was a tiny little patch of land uh, that was fought over for, you know, for a really long time uh, between the United States and Japan. I mean, we're talking months. The United States sustained uh, somewhere between 40 and 50,000 casualties. The Japanese lost, uh, you know, over like, you know, well, it depends on the estimate that you're looking at, but over 100,000 people died on that island that were Japanese. And we're talking a battle that took months over a tiny little piece of land. And it's just, to me, it is a really, really, it's really emblematic of how difficult fighting the Pacific had become. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis last week with my class. And uh, John F. Kennedy uh, writes in a lot of his letters and his experience in the South Pacific during World War, or World War II about how um, they would arrive on islands and just see, you know, dead bodies everywhere, like just committing suicide preemptively before the Americans even got there. And that really talks about the mentality and the, and the nature of that, um, that fighting that took place over there. It was just, it just horrible and awful and brutal. And when I lived in Japan, I had one of my co-teachers ask me, like, you know, did you think America should have dropped the atomic bombs on Japan? <laughs> Which is a hell of a question, by the way, to be asking yeah. your 25-year-old assistant teacher who's American. You know, and he's like struggling to communicate this in your language. Um, but it's, it, it's really hard. I guess my, my overall point, and I'll just finish with this, is that it's really hard for us to get into that mindset because it is just – it's it's not something that we fully appreciate. And Eugene Sledge's memoir and the the sequel, the the Pacific uh, Band of Brothers, you know, sequel, I think does a good job at trying to like put people in that mindset. But it's just it's impossible to get there. It's so hard. Um, yeah, I thought it was. It, I thought I found it to be a very. I haven't. You know, it's one of those things. I didn't. You don't. You know, I don't even hardly remember it. In I haven't had taken an American history course since high school, but I don't remember the battle of the Pacific much. I mean, so yeah, much I mean, time you know, is spent in the European theater that right. um, yeah, it's been a long time, but I mean, I, I don't, it, there wasn't much of it, you know? And yeah, so we like, to watch that show, the Pacific sea, midway. So damn grim. Jeez. Yeah. Well, and, and I actually Tough specifically watch. talk about midway because midway is just nuts. <laughs> Japan lost three aircraft carriers in literally five minutes, like literally five minutes. Um, some American dive bombers just like got lost appear out of nowhere dump their bombs on, you know, a third of Japan of, of the Japanese fleet and just destroy it in literally five minutes. Like, it's just crazy. The whole thing is yeah. weird and crazy and grim. And it's just, it's, it's nuts. Um, all right. So moving on from the history stuff, just last thing here real quick. This is from Nate um, kind of dunking on Jim Delaney a little bit. He says with the departure of Jim Delaney next summer, will the big 10 men's basketball attorney finally return to an exciting production again, or will it remain behind the ACC and the SEC as far as being an exciting event rather than just a bland and boring display of basketball. Well, is this, I would assume this is because of the locations. I would, yes. Right? right. You know, so like, all right, this is Delaney gets lots. We talked at length about him a couple of weeks ago and um, he gets a lot of credit for lining a lot of pockets, but he also has to take some of the blame for adding Rutgers forever. And he deserves some of the blame <laughs> for putting the big 10 basketball tournament a week before everybody else in New York. He deserves blame for trying to play it in Washington, D.C. 
he did he deserves blame for trying to push the Big Ten product to places that do not want it, as opposed to just letting it flourish in places that do. And the best example of this is the Southeastern Conference. The SEC is not going to go play its its conference football championship game in Jerry World. They're going to play it in Atlanta because that's where the SEC is located. It's in the South. And the same for us. We do not need to be playing the basketball tournament, in my opinion, anywhere other than Conseco. There's no yeah. reason to play it anywhere other than that. It's a place where everybody can get to. It's a great town to navigate. It's a fantastic basketball arena. You can get there quickly no matter where you are, relatively speaking. I have no interest. If you want to put it in Chicago every once in a while, it's not as good as Indianapolis, but fine. But if you really want a city where you get the best experience, it's got to be in Indianapolis. No, I, yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I don't, I mean, I, I know what they've been trying to do and then the whole, like, you know, the marketing and all that stuff. But yeah, I agree. You got to have it in Indy. And I know, I mean, maybe it's weird just because you've got the the championship, the Big Ten, you know, football championship and all that. But like, it's, it's, it's got to be in Indy. The state itself, obviously, is huge for basketball. It's just, I, I don't understand why you would want to kind of, change that part of your identity because it really is i mean to me that's that's emblematic of what the big 10 is and that in a good way like in a good like that's something that you want to say like this is this is midwest is hoosiers you know this is all that other stuff and that's that's a great way to showcase that so i'm i'm with you 100 percent on that um i mean it's just too simple yeah it's the best place to have it it's and it's the best basketball only facility that i've ever been in in from a pro level like a twenty thousand plus I mean, there's nothing I've been in that's better than Conseco. It's yeah. designed for basketball. Right. Perfect. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Like, you want to you be in a place that looks like it should be hosting a big tournament like that, a big basketball tournament, right? Yeah, like, you, it's got to be something where you're that, you know, it, it's just that classy and, and, and appropriate. And, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that 100%. So, yeah. All right, that's Ask Us Anything. Keep sending those in, guys. There's a couple – again, we're going to keep on the back burner for, the, uh, for a little later on in the offseason after uh, – Spring football's over, but those are great. Keep sending them in. Yeah, good job out of you guys. Good job out of you, buddy. We'll talk to you again soon. Yep, talk to you next week.